Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tiffany McKenzie, who is a partner at Brian Cave down in Atlanta. We're going to be talking a little bit about the documentation that everyone should have in their estate plans, but we're going to focus a little bit more specifically on healthcare directives because it's an area that has taken on much more importance in the COVID-19 environment. Tiffany, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having me. So let's describe the COVID environment a little bit from a planning perspective. What's really sort of I think shocking to most people is sort of the totality and speed with which the virus has become important in our lives. And I thought it'd be interesting just to hear where you come from on it and how you get people to get their arms around just the speed and sometimes the finality of what takes place. Sure. So right now is actually where you're just in a unique position. So as estate planners, we're always trying to help clients plan for things that they can't imagine would happen. Usually that's death or incapacity. We haven't really thought about the idea of a pandemic, but now is the time. <laughs> you know, now is the time for clients and individuals to be thinking about what could possibly happen if they are quickly admitted into a hospital or quickly lose capacity or unfortunately pass away. And that's kind of the environment in which we find ourselves with COVID-19. U.S. citizens with COVID are dying more and more. Symptoms are rising. The cases are rising, especially here in the South. It's caused a situation where clients may not have thought that this is the way that they were going to die. So when they're filling out healthcare directives or wills or trusts, they have not thought of this as a possibility. So it's interesting that we think about healthcare directives in the age and the time of COVID and the time of respirators and ventilators and things that normally people would say, I don't want, but this might be a time where you may change your mind on something like that. We'll get into this in the healthcare directives in a second, but one of the points that I read that you'd written that really struck me was the idea that many times people are getting to the hospital and they're unaccompanied. And so people are kind of out there doing their own thing. By that meaning, they don't have a lot of choice as to what they're able to do and in the hospital, and hopefully the documentation's in place. Is this something that you're seeing in your practice? More and more, and I'm sure individuals who aren't even in the position of going to the hospital for COVID, but just going to a doctor's office, you'll see that many offices, healthcare practices are not allowing individuals to bring spouses or loved ones in just because of the nature of social distancing and the requirement to keep numbers low in internal situations. So obviously, when you're going into a hospital, more often than not, you're not allowed to bring a loved one with you. We've even seen that with individuals who are having children who are just giving birth that they can't even bring family in. So it makes it very difficult for someone who's close to you to speak your desires if you don't have planning in place disorienting to be sure. As we get into more detail on these directives, maybe a quick reminder of some of the usual documents in estate planning that people should have in place. Sure. Often when clients come to us, we talk about our basic estate planning package, and that usually includes a will, so a last will and testament. And the will is basically the document that describes in it how you want to administer your estate. So that's everything that you own 
upon your death. And there is the place where you name an executor. So that's the person who is tasked with administering your estate when you die. Also, we'll think about trusts. Trusts are a great way and a great mechanism to take care of loved ones, minor children, family. Trusts are definitely much longer lasting. So trust can last for a perpetuities period. It could last for hundreds of years. And it's a great way to make sure that your children are taken care of in the future. And in a trust, you name a fiduciary called a trustee, and that's the person who makes sure and administers the trust in the way that you desire. And then we've got what we call the ancillary document. So that's the power of attorney and the healthcare directive. And both of those documents are really documents where you name someone, an agent, to take care of decisions for you, whether they be health-related decisions or financial-related decisions for you, if you're unable. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're incapacitated, but you just might not be able to make those decisions for yourself. Terrific. And so from the healthcare directive perspective, which we're about to dive into a little bit, you talked about the concept of having people make decisions for your health. What does that entail? I would suspect that a lot of that is sort of laying out preferences, whether it's resuscitate at all costs or if there's some sort of lower standard there or different types of medication that you'd be willing to try. What else are you seeing on that front? Advanced directives, they're legal documents where you specify your healthcare treatment preferences. That's usually called the living will portion of the directive. You also specify a healthcare agent or proxy. And that person can do many things. So they could admit you or discharge you from a hospital, nursing facility, hospice. They could request consent or withhold or withdraw any type of health care. They can contract with healthcare facilities. They can make decisions based off of what it is that you advise them to do on your treatment preferences, whether or not you want your organs to be donated, how you want to dispose of your body when you die. Do you want to be buried or cremated? Do you want ventilation? Do you want nutrition? Do you want fluids? Things like that. Lovely dinnertime conversation, yeah. to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> but important things to consider, especially if someone walks into a situation having prior health situations or if you're trying to guess what's around the corners, whether it's the latest pandemic or something along those lines. Along that line of thinking, there's all sorts of different options that you can put in place. When naming the person who is your proxy, helping to sort of implement these preferences, who do you think should be considered for this role? Or are there people that you obviously want somebody responsible, probably a relative or somebody like that who is able to sort of understand the family situation and knows you personally? But what other factors should be considered in someone taking on this type of responsibility? Exactly. As you said, someone who knows you well, we often tell clients as well, it should probably, and if you can, name someone who lives close to you, just because you never know when something can happen and you would want someone who could get to a hospital within the next 24 hours. Again, that's not required. Obviously, we're in an age where you can hop on a plane and get most places in the United States pretty quickly. But it does make it a bit more helpful if you have someone that lives in the area in which you live. Often also we see clients when they're making this decision that sometimes they get a little reluctant to name, for example, a spouse or a parent because they think that the parent or the spouse is going to do everything possible to keep them alive instead of just letting them go naturally. So that's always an interesting conversation to have with clients when they say, no, I just want to 
die peacefully and naturally. And I'm pretty sure my spouse or my mom or my dad is going to just keep me there (laughs) because they're just going to be so distraught about the state that I'm in. So that's always an interesting conversation, too. I was going to say, I've seen it on the other side when if there's any question, there are people who say, yep, pull the plug. And yeah. <laughs> you're like, well, wait a minute, that's that may not be exactly what's wanted too. So uh, <laughs> probably could work both ways. Right. And we always see clients who may have a medical professional in the family. They'll like to name them because they're hip to the medical jargon and what's going on there. So that's always a good option too. But again, it's just anyone that you trust to make these decisions for you on your behalf. It's also a lot of work. Trying to navigate the medical community can be a full-time job in and of itself. Whenever I've seen it come across the radar screen, as it were, I try to tell people that be mindful of the fact that when you're dealing with nursing homes and hospitals and so on, they have their own set of expertise that people have to get, get up to speed on quite quickly. And that's something that I try to let people understand that when you're taking on this role, it's important. And it's also something that you have to take seriously because it's not just calling somebody up and telling them things. There's forms to fill out and there's actual responsibility. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Further to that point, the idea of communicating in this day and age, remote methods, Zoom phone calls, is that becoming a much bigger part of this proxy responsibility? Recently, I wrote a blog article about this, and it was mainly about addressing some of the things that our normal healthcare directives are now lacking in this day and age. And I think that concept of communication is one of the major things that most healthcare directives, if you had signed them in just February, didn't have. And I think that is making sure that your directive has some type of instruction that your doctors and your healthcare professionals can receive instruction and direction from your healthcare proxy if they're not present. So again, if you get admitted to the hospital and your spouse can't come in with you, how should your doctors take orders from your spouse? And that could be over the phone, maybe it's an email, maybe it's in text, maybe it's via Zoom. And I think most doctors, and again, I'm not a doctor, but I think most of them would be willing to take some type of direction, but I'm not sure how you prove identity over the phone. (laughs) But I think it would be prudent for many healthcare directives in this day and age to include some type of power for the named agent to give direction via telephone or Zoom or text in a matter that would work in this day and age. Along those lines, and this is probably not for emergency situations, but in areas where people are thinking about end of life and the types of scenarios where assisted care is becoming more and more a part of a family situation. What do you think about the idea of having those relationships already in place? To me, I've seen it in a couple of situations, family included, where the idea of having the institution ready to receive someone in case something happens, whether it's putting a deposit down or something like that, that's an important component. Is that something that you think is a good practice or is that overkill? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you can already be in a relationship with your healthcare providers, that's number one. If they know you well, if they know your family members well already. I've also told clients, check with your healthcare professionals to see if they have any additional forms that you may need to fill out and go ahead and just have those prepared. Often we'll see that clients will bring their healthcare directives, but a hospital or a healthcare provider may have some additional forms that they recognize and their lawyers have reviewed. So maybe calling up your healthcare providers and saying, are there any additional requirements 
should something happen to me besides the documentation I already have? And like you said, just forming those relationships and making sure that you're ready to go in the worst case scenario. So let's get back to sort of COVID-specific things right now. As it relates to intubations and the use of ventilators, is certain drug treatments that are both extremely important attempts, but at the same time, not necessarily all vetted out, certainly on the drug side of things. There's lots of different things being tried. The proxy when they're forced to make decisions on that and whether they go towards something that's a little bit more experimental versus something that's more tried and true, how does the document sort of take care of the proxy in terms of using judgment in that case? Is that something that you think about or is it just an area where proxies just got to kind of go with the flow and take what's given to them from the medical community? Most proxies, and I'm most familiar with Georgia's, It's really an advisory document. It's not a binding document. So healthcare professionals are tasked with and they have the ethical duty to do everything in their power to save your life. So more often than not, the healthcare directive is not coming into effect until such time in which you likely are going to die. But what makes it so interesting in this time and age with COVID is that, as you said, there's so many experimental options in ventilation and intubation that could possibly save your life. But doctors are kind of being put in this interesting position to make that judgment and make that judgment quickly. And and whether or not it'll be right, no one knows. So it's interesting to think about when the proxy would come into effect at a time like that, where the doctor may not know whether or not ventilation or intubation is, one, even correct at that time, or two, would actually save your life. So I think it's important for clients and individuals to think about situations like that and what they would want to occur at a time like that. And often most clients say, I don't want ventilation or intubation, but I think, and even myself included in my document, I said that I didn't want that, but I think I would change that in a COVID era because I would want to know that the one thing that could possibly save my life in this instance was actually used. Thinking about editing healthcare directives that you may have already drafted to allow for some more experimentation, to allow for broad discretion when it comes to intubation and ventilation, I think is something that people should think about and think about revisiting their health care directives during this time. And as we start to think about winding down here, when exactly does the proxy take over for the decision making and sort of the ill patient give up that decision making? Is there any gray area there that you try to write into the document or is there anything there that you worry about? That's exactly what I was just saying is that it should only take effect at the point at which you likely will not recover. The problem is we don't know when <laughs> when that is, and it's so touch and go at this time. But again, it's an advisory document. When you draft it, you put in your treatment preferences. You tell your agent kind of what it is that you want. Do you want you to extend your life as long as possible? Do you want to die naturally? Do you want medications? Do you want machines? Do you want medical procedures? And really, your agent then is tasked with the decision of following your healthcare directive. But again, the doctors are first priority. Second, your agent could even go against what it is you've written. But remembering that they've got this document that is advising them as to the decisions that you want. What else should we be thinking about for emergency situations, whether it's COVID or something else popping up? I think the first one is just having some of these documents in place for when it's time to deal with something that pops up, whether planned or unplanned. Any other thoughts? Is there a good idea maybe to have other documents where 
contact information or account numbers or insurance information is handy? Absolutely. First and foremost, communication is key. So obviously telling your loved ones your treatment preferences, how you want your end of days to go. And also if, for instance, you are admitted into a hospital and at that time you're able to speak, go ahead and make your wishes known. Tell your doctors, write it down, do whatever it is you can while you have the capacity and the ability to do so to let them know your treatment preferences. Third, as you said, is go ahead and just jot down. I often tell clients, make a treasure list map of exactly all of your healthcare providers, your advisors, your legal, your accountants, your financial advisors. Let people know about your assets. Let them know where they can find things. That's kind of one of the hardest things we come across when someone unfortunately passes away. Their loved ones say, I don't know. I don't know what they had. I don't know where to find things. I don't know how to get access. Just give them the opportunity and the ability to find your assets, to know what they are, to know who the people are that advise you and leave that treasure map behind. That's great advice. I talk about the concept of having a go bag of documents and lists of information so that people who are acting on your behalf have a much easier time reconstructing what you had in mind. It lines up exactly with what you're talking about. I think we're ready to go. Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on. How do we keep track of you and what you're writing about and what's happening in your world? Sure. Well, my email is tiffany.mckenzie, and it's M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E at briancave.com. You can also just Google Tiffany McKenzie at Brian Cave, and my bio will pop up with all of my contact information, as well as we have a blog at Brian Cave. It's called Trust BCLP, where I draft a lot of blog articles about interesting and up-to-date current topics, and that can also be found on my bio. Terrific. Tiffany, thanks for coming on. I'll have all that information in the show notes for our listeners. And have a great rest of the week and stay safe down in Atlanta. Thanks, Fraser. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.